Uh, well, friends, uh, I wonder whether you've ever watched uh, a TV show called Undercover Boss. Has anyone seen Undercover Boss before? Uh, yep, all those who love TV. Uh, I, I haven't seen the show myself, but uh, I know what it's about. Uh, in the show, the boss or the CEO of a company goes undercover and joins the employees of the company on the factory floor. Uh, it's meant to give the CEO a bit of a feel for what is actually going on in the business and how the employees are actually working. But uh, the show also reveals how the employee's response to the boss actually matters. The words they use in speaking about the boss really matter. I mean, can you imagine what will happen if uh, the boss is amongst them and he hears the employees slandering him uh, right under his nose? Uh, now, friends, uh, we've been looking at Matthew's Gospel for quite some time now, and uh, what we've been seeing is that Jesus, uh, a little bit like that CEO or boss, has arrived in the midst of Israel. God's great king has arrived in Israel. And so in chapters 8 to 10, what we've been seeing have been the sorts of things that you would expect to see if God's king arrives in the world. You know, healing the sick, calming the storm, raising the dead, proclaiming good news. And yet in chapters 11 to 12, we've been seeing the response of Israel to God's king, and sadly, that response has largely been negative. And I want to suggest that in our passage this morning, Matthew picks up on the importance of words that are spoken in response to Jesus' ministry and mission. Uh, you can see it there in verse 36. If you have a, uh, your Bibles open in front of you, have a look with me at chapter 12, verse 36. Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. You see, there's a lot at stake with our words, according to Jesus, isn't there? They can send you to heaven, or they can send you to hell. But these are not just any words that Jesus is speaking about here. Rather, they are words that are spoken in response to Jesus' ministry and mission. That is, the words that you and I speak... Uh, every time we hear about Jesus' ministry and mission, really matter. They impact our eternal destinies. Why? Well, it's because words tell you something about the nature of the person. Uh, that's Jesus' point in verses 33 to 35. Just as you can tell whether a tree is good or bad by the kind of fruit that it produces, well, you can see the kind of heart a person has by the words that they speak in response to Jesus. I wonder what kind of words we speak whenever we hear about Jesus' ministry and mission. 
Well, uh, in our passage this morning, we're going to see some words that are spoken by the Pharisees uh, in response to Jesus' ministry and uh, how Jesus himself responds to these words. And uh, you'll notice there that the first words spoken by the Pharisees are blasphemous words, uh, words that denigrate God. For the Pharisees bring the charge that Jesus' ministry and mission actually has a demonic force. Uh, You can see the words of the Pharisees there in verse 24, can't you? Have a look at verse 24. Matthew says, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said that it is only by Beelzebul, which was another popular name for Satan, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Uh, These words are spoken uh, after Jesus heals a demon-possessed man and and casts out the demon. But uh, rather than um, uh, being excited and considering whether Jesus really is the Messiah or the son of David, as the crowds do, well, the Pharisees bring the serious charge that Jesus' ability to cast out these demons is itself demonic in nature. But how does Jesus respond to these words? Uh, Well, you can see there that he begins by showing the logical absurdity of what uh, the Pharisees have just said. Uh, In verse 25, Matthew says, Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Uh, Some of you might know that there is a famous football club in England called Manchester United, uh, or the Red Devils, as as they're called, uh, quite aptly, I think. Um, I'm sorry if you don't follow the football, but uh, it's one of the largest football clubs in the world, and uh, they have had many seasons where they've won trophy after trophy. However, uh, there have been rumours of late about divisions within the club. Uh, You know, the the, the coach is divided against his players. Um, The the, the management is divided against the coach. And uh, ever since uh, these rumours have surfaced, uh, the team have performed uh, more poorly and uh, they are sliding down the ladder. Uh, You see, that's the point that Jesus is making here, isn't it? Divisions weaken any team. Uh, It's true of sporting teams, it's true of governments, it's true of families, and it's true of Satan's team or his kingdom. And so why on earth would Satan be casting out his own if he knows that it will basically defeat his own kingdom? Satan is not that stupid, right? But there's also a lovely twist to what Jesus says here as well. For he says in verse 27, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? In other words, Jesus knows that um, exorcisms were being done in Jewish circles as well. And so what he's saying to the Pharisees is, well, if you think that I'm driving out uh, demons by the power of Satan, then Can't the same logic be applied to your own people? 
Uh, by what power are they driving out demons? And so Jesus turns the argument back on them. Now, uh, if the Pharisees' interpretation of events is logically absurd, then what is actually going on with Jesus' ministry as he casts out demons? Well, uh, if you have a look at what follows, Jesus gives his own interpretation of events, and he says that the casting out of demons is really meant to show why he has come into this world. And the reason why he has come into this world is to free captives from the power and influence of Satan. Uh, You can see it there in verse 28, can't you? Verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Uh, I've never been burgled before. Um, Has anyone been burgled uh, here before? Uh, There's quite a lot of us, isn't there? Um, uh, I've spoken to many people who've been burgled and there's a common theme I've noticed. Um, Those who have been burgled before tend to keep a weapon of some sort underneath their beds. Is that true? Uh, Who keeps a weapon underneath their bed? Yeah, thank you. Um, It may be a baseball bat. uh, It may be a golf club. Um, I I don't know, you might have some other weapon. I don't want to know about it. Uh, But basically, what you are saying is, if you want to rob me again, uh, you need to kind of overcome me, isn't it? And uh, that's what Jesus is saying here. Uh, The strong man, in this case, is Satan himself. And what Jesus has come to do is overcome Satan so that he can set free Satan's captives who have been living under his power and influence. Now, uh, I know, friends, that many people these days don't believe in Satan anymore. Uh, Some people think that because we live in a scientific age, then uh, there is only the material world, and so there is no such thing as Satan or evil uh, or the spiritual world. And so these people typically think that humanity is not evil. There's no such thing as Satan. Uh, Humanity is basically good, and what Jesus has really come to do is help good people become slightly better. Is that right? Uh, you know, he, he, That's how some of our friends might speak about Jesus. He, he's somebody who has just come to help us become a little bit better. But what I want to suggest is that this is a profoundly superficial understanding of the, of the human condition. For what Jesus has been showing all along in Matthew's Gospel is that the world that you and I live in is a world that is actually under the grip and power of Satan. Hatred, murder, sexual immorality, sickness, disease, death, natural disasters, they all point to a world that is in the grip of evil. Now, I'm not suggesting, therefore, that if you are sick or Uh, if you are experiencing a natural disaster, that you are therefore more under the power of Satan than others. 
But this is the reality of the world that we live in. And what God says to us actually makes sense of the world that we live in. It makes sense of what you read in the papers every day. It makes sense of the darkness that we see in our society. It makes sense of the darkness that you and I see in our own hearts. And what Jesus says here is that he has come to overcome Satan once and for all so that you and I who have been captive to Satan can be set free. That's why Jesus says, you need to choose which side you are on. You can see it there in verse 30, can't you? Verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. You see, there are only two sides. You are either on the side of Jesus and doing his work, or you are on the side of Satan. Jesus leaves very little wiggle room. There is no middle ground. There is no fence to sit on. You can't hedge your bets with Jesus and still think that you are on his side. Friends, if you are here this morning and you have never decided in your heart that you are going to stand with Jesus and get serious about doing his work, then I want you to hear very clearly what Jesus says here. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather actually is on the other side and is scattering. Well, you may say, I I come to church, but I'm just happy to sit on the fence and, you know, I don't want to get too involved with Jesus and his mission. And Jesus would say, you are against me. Or you may say, you know, I like being with Christian people. They are my friends. But I'm just happy to hedge my bets a little bit and you know, I, I really don't want too much to do with Jesus and his mission because, well, I, I have other priorities in my life at the moment. And Jesus would say, you are against me. Or you may say, I've looked into all the evidence for Jesus and, you know, I think there's something to him, but I'll just delay making a decision because it's more comfortable for me that way. And Jesus is say, if you are not with me, you are against me. And friends, if you are against Jesus, then make no mistake, you are on the other side. There is no other alternative. There is no fence to sit on. There is no way to hedge your bets when it comes to Jesus. And so, because the Pharisees have very clearly chosen their side, Jesus offers one of the most sobering warnings in the Bible. You can see it there in verse 31, can't you? Have a look with me at verse 31. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Uh, Now, uh, some of us with tender consciences may have been troubled by these verses, 
where Jesus speaks about an unforgivable sin. Uh, is it a particular type of sin that uh, I may have committed in the past? We may wonder. What if I fail again and again and again in a particular sin? Have I committed the unforgivable sin? Uh, what if I made a joke about the Holy Spirit back in the day? Um, have I committed the unforgivable sin? What is the unforgivable sin? Uh, well, friends, uh, in order to understand what Jesus is saying here, um, I think it's very important that we read his words in context. And uh, what have the Pharisees been doing here? Well, they have been rejecting Jesus and calling him who is good evil. And who is this Jesus that they are rejecting? Well, flip over with me to chapter 12, verse 18. Uh, just uh, a page. Uh, chapter 12, verse 18. Uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus there is the servant of God that the prophet Isaiah has been speaking about. And uh, this prophet that Isaiah, uh, this servant of God that Isaiah is speaking about is the one who is endowed with the Holy Spirit. Further, uh, if you flip forward once again to chapter 12, verse 28, verse 28. Uh, you can see there that Jesus' ministry and mission is being carried out under the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what the Pharisees were doing when they were rejecting Jesus is that they were trampling on the ministry of the Holy Spirit again and again and again. And so it seems to me that the unforgivable sin is not a particular sin which, you know, if you and I commit once, we will never be forgiven of. Uh, neither is it a repeated sin uh, for which you and I uh, come to God for forgiveness uh, and seeking to repent from uh, that sin. But it is the ongoing and willful rejection of Jesus as God's King. The willful um, and active and ongoing rejection of Jesus as God's King in a person's life. If you and I have heard the good news of Jesus, but continue to brush Jesus away again and again and again, then make no mistake, there will be no forgiveness either now or in eternity. And so if you are here this morning, and you know that you have been knowingly and willfully rejecting Jesus in your life, then can I beg you to turn to him? Turn to him. And stand with him and trust him and be on his side. But friends, um, this is a curious passage because in verse 32, uh, it seems to suggest that speaking against the Son of Man, uh, or Jesus in other words, is somehow a lesser sin than speaking against the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? Now, can you see it there? Um, I wonder whether uh, you can just quickly um, turn to your neighbour and uh, have, a, have a think about why that might be the case. Uh, why is speaking against Jesus here uh, in some ways a lesser sin than speaking against the Holy Spirit? you understand the question? Give me a nod if you understand. Yep, okay. Um, have a chat with your neighbour. I'll give you a minute or so.
Um, okay, uh, any, any thoughts? Why, why is speaking against the Son of Man? Uh, why, why does Jesus say that that can be forgiven, whereas speaking against the Holy Spirit won't be? Any, any thoughts? Uh, yes, yes. So to, to speak against God is to speak against Jesus? Is that what you're saying? Okay, okay. Um, I, I think uh, in the Gospels, uh, Jesus himself claims to be God. And so uh, speaking against the Son of Man, in, in one sense, is, I think, speaking against God. Um, and so I, I, I think it's, it's still a very serious um, thing to speak against the Son of Man. Yeah, yeah, which is what Jesus is saying here. Um, I, I suppose the, the question is why? <laughs> yep, Matthew. Matt. <laughs> that's all right, that's all right. Hmm, hmm. Um, so uh, I'm not quite following the, the logic, so... Yeah. Yeah, so if, if you're rejecting... If you're speaking against the Holy Spirit, you're kind of destroying yourself because the Holy Spirit is living in you, uh, whereas Jesus is more external. Uh, yep. Uh, last one, uh, Andrew. Okay, that's interesting. So to, to uh, reject the ministry of Jesus, which is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is somehow worse than speaking against himself, uh, just, just as speaking against the ministry at church at nine uh, may be a more serious thing than one of you coming up to me as a minister and, and having saying words against me. Uh, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting thought. Uh, that, I must admit, I'd, I'd never thought of that. Um, uh, I'll tell you what I think. Um, the, I think uh, what Jesus... Again, I think the, it, it's very important to read uh, parts of the Bible like this in the context of the entire Bible. And uh, if you read through the Gospels, uh, you will see that in some sense... At this point in time, the identity of Jesus is still a little bit veiled. Okay, so uh, at the cross and that is at the resurrection, uh, the identity of Jesus is is revealed for all to see. But at this particular junction in the Gospels, the the identity of Jesus is still a little bit uh, uh, obscure. Uh, to the point that even his closest disciples don't quite get who Jesus is at this point. Um, and that's why uh, even later on, uh, people like the Apostle Peter actually speak against Jesus <laughs> by denying him three times, you see. And what Jesus is saying, therefore, is if you speak against me uh, out of ignorance, uh, just like Peter, then, yeah, there will be forgiveness, as there was for Peter. But if you willfully, knowingly, ongoingly reject Jesus as king, there will be no forgiveness. Yeah, no, I don't think he's saying the Holy Spirit is somehow higher, but I think speaking against the Holy Spirit is, a, is um, rejecting Jesus knowingly, willfully, ongoingly, uh, whereas, you know, rejecting Jesus at, at this point uh, uh, of the gospel uh, or speaking against him uh, out of ignorance 
is uh, is still able to be forgiven. So uh, let, let's keep on uh, talking about that if, uh, if if that's a little bit unclear uh, at this stage in your mind, but uh, we've got to move on. Now, uh, we've seen the blasphemous words of the Pharisees and how Jesus responds to, to these words, but in the second half of our passage, we see the Pharisees coming back to Jesus uh, with words that seek for a sign, words that seek for a sign. And you can see it there in verse 38, can't you? Verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, at first glance, there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with that, does it? I mean, what's wrong with uh, asking Jesus for uh, evidence that he really is from God? However, I want you to notice that the Pharisees' request here is not a sincere one, for Jesus, in verse 39, calls them an evil and adulterous generation. Uh, we've seen previously in verse 25 that Jesus knows the thoughts of the Pharisees. Now, isn't that a frightening thought? That here is one who knows your thoughts, my thoughts, what is deep within us. But here, Jesus calls them an evil and adulterous generation because he knows that these Pharisees are not asking for a sign, sincerely wishing to uh, weigh up their evidence, but rather they have already made up their minds to reject Jesus, just like an adulterer has made up his mind to reject his wife. In fact, the Pharisees have seen miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And so uh, what more do they want to see from Jesus? I mean, it's just like those people who say, I will only believe in God if you know, God does some sort of miracle in my life, even though they really have no intention of ever turning back to God. It was the same problem in Jesus' time because even though Jesus did miracle upon miracle, people still wanted more miracles because they had their mind made up. You see, friends, the problem ultimately is not that there is bad evidence for Jesus, but the problem ultimately is that is of a hardened heart against him. And so Jesus does not entertain the request of the Pharisees for a sign. Uh, rather, he says that there will be one final sign, and that is the sign of Jonah. Now you can see it there in verse 39, can't you? Verse 39, But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Uh, you might remember the story of Jonah. Uh, he's the, the Old Testament prophet who gets swallowed by, by a big fish uh, for trying to run away from God's call. Uh, but what does God do? Well, God uh, miraculously rescues Jonah uh, from a watery grave. Um, and... This resurrection of Jonah, if you like, is a sign to the, to the people of Nineveh, uh, who are a Gentile people, because Jonah then goes and preaches judgment to the people of Nineveh. Uh, he gives the shortest sermon ever 
uh, an eight-word sermon that said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And in response to that short sermon, the people of Nineveh repent and respond rightly to God. Uh, Now, what Jesus says here is that similarly to Jonah, he himself will spend three days and three nights in the earth after his death on the cross. Uh, Now, for those of us who are paying careful attention, uh, you might say, well, that doesn't quite make sense because if Jesus died on a Friday and rose again on a Sunday, that's two nights, (laughs) not three nights, right? Um, But uh, no need to get too hung up on that because uh, the the Jewish people actually um, counted part days as a whole day. Uh, That was their method of counting days, uh, which is why um, uh, Jesus mentions three days and three nights. Uh, And yet the point that Jesus is making here is that just like Jonah, God will rescue Jesus from the grave, and this resurrection will be a sign that warns people that God's judgment is coming. Uh, You see, in the New Testament, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a sign not only that Jesus is God's king, but that judgment is coming. And so uh, in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, Acts chapter 17, verse 30, um, you don't need to turn it up, I'll just read it to you. Uh, Paul is preaching to uh, Gentiles in the city of Athens, and this is what he says. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed And he has given proof of this judgment. He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is God's great big neon sign that tells you that judgment is coming and that the only sensible thing that you and I can do is to repent and turn to Jesus before that day comes. For on the day of judgment, Jesus will be the judge the one who knows every thought. And if you and I have not turned to him, there will be no forgiveness. It is God's final warning to a rebellious world. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's giving the Pharisees one final chance to turn back. And he says in verse 41 that that if they do not turn back, then they will be condemned. Interestingly, by the people of Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, uh, he's speaking about privilege, isn't he? You know, the people of Nineveh, they didn't have Jesus. (laughs) Uh, They didn't have all the prophets. They just had this disobedient and pathetic prophet called Jonah preaching an eight-word sermon, and yet they repented and responded rightly to God. Or how about the Queen of Sheba, whom we read about in our Old Testament reading? Uh, She was also a, a Gentile who lived far away from Israel. She didn't have Jesus. And yet all it took was for her to hear a rumor 
of the wisdom of this great king. And she traveled the ends of the earth to hear this wisdom and respond rightly to God. And we are told that when the Queen of Sheba met Solomon and saw him with her own eyes and heard him with her own ears, I love this phrase. It, it says it literally took her breath away. There was no breath in her. But here are these Pharisees, and they have the privilege of actually having Jesus, God's Messiah and King, in their very midst. Not only do they know the message of the prophets like Jonah, but they have God's greatest prophet <laughs> preaching to them. Not only do they know about the wisdom of King Solomon, but they have God's greatest king speaking wisdom to them at the Sermon on the Mount. And yet, they still reject Jesus. And so what Jesus is saying here is that if they do not repent, then one day when God's judgment will come, they will see the Ninevites. And these Ninevites will come up to them and say, we only had the prophet Jonah. You had Jesus, and yet you still did not repent. And they will see the Queen of Sheba coming to them, saying, I only heard this rumor about God's king, and I responded rightly. You had God's king himself, and yet still you rejected him. And I wonder what the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba will say to you and me if we do not repent. You had thousands of years worth of Christian teaching at your fingertips. You had good Bible teaching churches on every corner. You had Christian friends encouraging you to listen and turn back. You had more college you had city Bible forum. You had opportunity upon opportunity to know about Jesus and his death and resurrection. And yet you still did not repent. You sat on the fence. If you and I will not repent, then we will be condemned not only by those who have had far less privilege than us, but by God himself. Uh, now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in verses 43 to 45, uh, but here Jesus gives an illustration of a man who ha has had a demon uh, cast out from him. And uh, uh, after the demon is driven away, um, the, the demon goes away and brings back seven of his mates so that uh, the condition of the man is worse than at first. And um, uh, I think what Jesus is doing here is he's giving a picture of what has been happening to Israel. Uh, Israel's king has come uh, to drive out evil from them. And yet, what have the Israelites done? Well, they have rejected their Jesus. Uh, their, their, uh, he has, they have rejected Jesus, and so Jesus is saying, "Evil will return, and you will be worse off than when you first started." I think we see this in our society. 
the more we walk away from our Christian past, the worse evil we will see. Truth will be compromised, as we are already seeing. Sexual immorality will grow worse, as we are seeing. Greed and materialism, materialism will be rampant, as we are seeing. And what is true of a society is also true of an individual. The more we harden our heart and reject Jesus, the worse off we will be. But as always, Matthew ends on a note of encouragement. For in verses 46 to 50, you can see there that in contrast to the Pharisees who continue to reject God's king again and again, we are given a picture of those who do respond rightly to Jesus as God's king. We're given a picture of uh, those who respond rightly. And if you have a look at verse 50, it is those who do the will of the Father, which is a way of speaking about people who stand with Jesus and do his work of mission. And it is these people that Jesus counts as his brother, his sister, his mother, his family. And so, brothers and sisters, let's be people who listen to God's warning uh, this morning and be people who gladly stand with Jesus and do his work of mission. Uh, what a joy it was uh, over the past few months to be doing the work of mission together as the family of God. Uh, let's be people who do the work of gathering rather than people who scatter. And let's be people whom Jesus calls his family, his brother, his sister, and his mother. Let's pray together. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather scatters. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you that uh, you have given us warnings in your word uh, out of your love for us and your desire to see us responding rightly to your Son. Uh, Father, we thank you for Jesus. Uh, thank you that he is the one who has come to bind Satan, the strong man, so as to set us free from his power. And uh, we pray especially that during times of temptation from the evil one, that you would help us to be a people who resist him and respond rightly to your son. And Father, we thank you for the great privilege we have in this generation to hear of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. We thank you for the people that we know who love us and are regularly preaching the gospel to us. And we thank you for resources that are available to us. And we thank you for our friends who are encouraging us. Uh, we pray for uh, we, we give you thanks for all these things and we pray that you would help us not to squander our privilege but take ev uh, every opportunity to grow in our knowledge of Jesus that we would love him and serve him in our lives uh, we pray especially this morning for those who perhaps are sitting on the fence when it comes to Jesus we pray that you would change their hearts so that that they might follow Jesus wholeheartedly and know the joy of being part of his family. And we pray this in Jesus' name.
I mean, 